Good morning, all. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to thank all of you here at the church that have uh, so faithfully supported Connect2. We are very blessed and honored that you would uh, count us worthy to receive offerings from this place and uh, know that it goes to, uh, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in, in Haiti. Um, I also would ask that you would pray for our Haitian people this morning. Uh, I just got some alerts on my phone that Haiti is it's kind of blowing up. Um, the government continues to abuse the people on an incredible level. And uh, they are protesting today in the streets, burning tires. Um, many people are being hurt uh, because the government has proved themselves to be so abusive and so uncaring for the people. And the people desperately want change. So um, <clears throat> makes you appreciate this place that... Uh, that uh, this is a place that uh, we have a voice and we have a say and a government that does care. So I'd appreciate your prayers for them today. I want to thank Ben for allowing me to share this morning. I want to warn you, first of all, I'm not a preacher. Um, so you're going to have to tolerate that. <clears throat> but as I was sitting over here, I was thinking, um, just asking the Lord to use me. And then I was reminded in, in of the story in Numbers chapter 22, where God actually spoke through a donkey. So I figured if he can do that, he can probably use this old man for his glory. So uh, my brother often says to me, just open your mouth, donkey. I've done this before. So we're going to give it a try this morning. Um, also, I wanted to recognize Mark and Malia and Kehau this morning. They're my family that are here. We uh, thank them for coming and being willing to listen to this. Um, I, I had to make a choice because to talk about what Connect2 does and all the things would really take more time than we're allotted. And I wanted to make a priority to not talk about our pastor training, our church buildings, you know, our, our feeding program, all of those things. But I wanted to share what the very core values of Connect2 Ministries are. God has called the church to be about Jesus. To see the world as he sees it. Yet we live in a world that through the news media and through all kinds of opinions, we, our views sometimes get a little bit tweaked and we see the world maybe not as it is. And I think our goal today would be to see the world as Jesus sees it, not as the world sees it. So I want to see it through a biblical perspective, a theological perspective, because I think that will give us a stake in the ground that will give us some perspective. And then to also, in the process of that, as we establish our theology, I think there's some sociology that goes along with that. And that is, what am I supposed to do based upon what I now know? Okay, so what do I know? What should I know? And what should I do based upon that? C.S. Lewis, in his trilogy, Chronicles of Nardia, introduced us to four children, Peter, Lucy, Susan, and Edwin. These children go through the wardrobe, and they enter into a world. They leave their world, and they enter into this world somewhat of a fantasy world. Well, I want to attempt to do something similar to that today, to, to introduce you to a world that you probably don't know exists, to go through this back of the wardrobe to introduce you to a whole new world. And that's the world of suffering children. There are three categories of suffering children I want to highlight this morning, only three. 
There's tons of them, but I want to introduce you to three. The first one is the area of child slavery. There are 151 million child slaves in this world. 151 million. 75 million of them are under the age of 10. These children are separated from their parents. They're separated from those who care for them. And if they do not perform, they are beaten terribly. Richard Stearns, who's the president of World Vision, in his book, Hole in the Gospel, he says this about statistics of poverty. I gave you those numbers, and those numbers just kind of go over your head. But he says this. When those statistics have a face and a name, then they become statistics then they become significant. I want to give you a face for the name of slavery. His name is Edwin's. Edwin's is a little friend of mine. He's five years of age. His parents are dead. Edwin's was sold into slavery when he was two and a half years of age. Edwin's owner had him clean his house, wash his clothes, carry water, wash his car. He was beaten often. Edwin slept under a table in the kitchen, and he was fed scraps for food. One day, he was beaten so bad that the neighbors heard him screaming and reported his beatings to the police, and the police took him and brought him to us, and he's now in our children's home. Edwin's is now safe. He is loved. He is fed, and he's being told about Jesus. Edwin's is one of 300,000 child slaves in Haiti. 300,000 child slaves in Haiti. He is one of the 85 children that we have rescued over the last year and a half into our children's home. We are currently building another home to house another hundred. So prayerfully in the next month to two months, we'll be able to open and rescue another hundred children this year. Pray for Edwin's. He has a long road to heal from his slavery. How does he learn to trust again? How does he learn to forgive his abuser? How does he learn to trust a God that would do that to him? Another area I want to highlight today is the area of of sex trafficking. 21 million nationwide are into the sex trafficking, have been taken into sex trafficking. Four million per year become new kids in in sex trafficking. Janeta is the face and name of sex traffic. Janeta's parents were very poor, and Janeta, she's seven years of age. I was just with her two weeks ago. Janeta's parents could not support her, so they sold her to an abuser. She was abused, not loved. She was starved and beaten. The police received a report about her abuse and her beatings, and she's now in our children's home. She's learned to trust. She's learning to be loved and to cared for. She desperately needs Jesus to help her forgive her parents and her abuser. So pray for her. There's another face and a name. The third area I'd like to share with you is the area of starving children. Meet Angelo. Angelo is seven years of age. He weighs 14 pounds. His family had four children. His mom could only feed three, so Angelo was chosen to die. We were able to rescue Angelo, and he 
lasted for a couple of years, but his starvation had beaten his body up so bad he didn't survive. Angelo represents many children that, that are, are starved daily. Can you imagine? Have any of you seen a child starve to death? Anybody? It's terrible. You know, typically you can you starve for, it, it, you need 30 to 40 days to starve to death. Interesting, Jesus went without food for 40 days, right at the very edge. Today, 16,000 children will die from starvation around the world. Yesterday, 16,000 children died from starvation around the world. Tomorrow, 16,000 children will die from starvation around the world. Does that kind of set you back? It sets me back. When we think about the amount of money that each restaurant throws away every day, every day, and then the thought that we have children starving and die. So how do we process all this? I don't know about you, but that's, this gives me a pit in my stomach. I'm going to ask a bold question. Where is God in all? I thought God was fair, just, kind, loving, compassionate. Why these children and not your children? Why those children and not my children? Is that a reasonable question? If God is fair and just, that's a great question. How do we process all of this stuff within a theological term that makes some sense? This can create a personal crisis, which it did in me, the reality of suffering at that level. And this is just a small microcosm. But it also creates a theological crisis, doesn't it? Because how do I perceive God through all that? Well, if I could tolerate you, I want to take you through maybe my own personal theological and personal crisis. Some of you have heard the story, some of you have not, but I think it's worth repeating. My first missions trip was when I was 20 years of age. It wasn't for a week, it was for three months. And I was, went to East Africa. Little did I know in the middle of, in that time, in East Africa, they were in the middle of a famine. In Ethiopia, we lost 200,000 people in a matter of two years. My team, I went with six people. They, five of them stayed up north. I was sent down south, told to get on a bus, get on a bus. They told me to get off in three hours. Watching my watch, three hours, I'll get off. Get off and I find myself in a place that's unbelievable. Taken by a missionary to a, to a feeding station. This feeding station took in about 2,000 people. I was asked to join the team, so I did. I jumped in, and we started feeding people, bedding them down for the night. Got to bed really late. Was asked to get up about 1 o'clock in the morning to start preparing food for the next morning. And about 4.30 or so, they asked me if I would go out and start uh, getting people ready, getting waking them up, getting them ready to receive the food. And as I was working through the crowd, I would shake some people, and they wouldn't move kept moving on to more people and more people. And some of the people were moving, some of them weren't. 
As the sun came up about 5.30, I started walking back through those same people that didn't move. They still weren't moving. started checking pulses, and they were dead. By the time we were done separating those that were alive from those that were dead, <clears throat> over the half of the people were, had passed away in the middle of the night. Over a thousand people. Now, I'm, I'm born and raised in the San Fernando Valley. I'm a middle-class kid. I mean, this, this kind of freaks me out a little bit. I'd never seen anybody die before. Now, all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of, you know, a, a crisis. Little had we known, but there were some people that brought cholera into the camp. And these people were in such a weakened condition, by the time they showed signs of cholera, they were dead in four hours. So even if we had seen, there was really nothing we could do. Well, we sanitized the camp, buried the people. Then they moved me on to another place, which was a, a larger facility. It was a, a room similar to this, a little bigger, that was separated into three sections based upon their level of starvation and what they could ingest and what they couldn't. Some could only take liquid. Some could take a little bit more, some some stew. Then they had a little place off to the side, like a house. Um, they affectionately called the death house. And it had 20 cots in it and on each cot was someone that was in the last throes of life and death with their starvation. And um, they asked me if I could run IVs. I said, sure, I can do that. So we were running IVs on people. We would lose 15 out of 20 every eight hours. Well, for this cowboy, I'm, I'm done. I'm emotionally just, just totally freaked out. Now, my emotional crisis has now turned into a theological crisis. I was born and raised in the church. Dude, VBS was, you know, my deal. And Jesus loves me and, and all the things that I had been told about God. But I will tell you right then, I didn't see any of it. And I, my depression turned into anger. And so I asked for some time off. So I walked for three days. Didn't drink some. Didn't eat anything, screamed, yelled, argued with God. I never accused him. I'd learned that lesson from Job. But I said some pretty tough things. God, where are you in this? Why them? Are they so bad that they deserve this? And I'm so good that I didn't? I knew that couldn't be true. So it couldn't be on the basis of, of rightness or wrongness. So what was it? These were nice people. They hadn't done anything wrong. God, on what basis are you beginning to do this? Well, God took me to a great passage of Scripture because I desperately needed to know about him. So he took me to Isaiah chapter 45. <clears throat> and this is what it says. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me. That men may know from the rising of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness. Causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Does God dodge it? No. My conclusion after reading this is, God, it is your fault. And you are the one responsible. Because I needed to know that. 
Because if God was as victimized as I was, then, dude, we're in the same place. But if God took responsibility and he is all-powerful and he is all those things that we know is true, then, God, you got your fingerprints on this and you need to own it. So my issue is with you. So tell me where I'm wrong. Then he took me to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 38. You'll see it on the screen. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Who's the source of the problem? God is. He takes responsibility once again. Remember in Exodus chapter 4, don't turn there. Remember Moses and God are having this dialogue because God has asked Moses, I want you to go and talk to Pharaoh. Moses is not real keen on this whole thing. So he's making excuses. Dude, I, I don't talk real well. I, 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 I kind of stutter. God listens to that for a while, and then he finally says, okay, Moses, who made your mouth? Who made the deaf? Who made the mute? Who made the blind? Is it not I? See, God doesn't judge, doesn't, doesn't dodge anything. He defends himself. He says, it is my responsibility, and I will take it. Then God took me to another great place. He take, took me to Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Listen to this. See if there's a theme that kind of goes through here. But I gave you also cleanliness of teeth in all of your cities and lack of bread in all of your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained and would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but they would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and caterpillars were devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp to rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. What is God doing? What is God doing? What is the passion of God in this process is to have a relationship with these people. And what is he willing to do in order to have a relationship? Some pretty tough stuff, right? Very tough stuff. Wow. So God, you have purpose in what you are doing. What I was reading as cruelty was actually God in a process of trying to create a relationship. God is willing to do anything, anything, in order to draw us to himself. See, this kind of a punk 20-year-old that went to Africa was looking at God through this lens of stuff, provision. And what God was beginning to do is say, don't, don't look through the lens of stuff. Look through the lens of relationship. Because I don't bless you with stuff. 
I bless you with a relationship with me. And I am willing to take all the stuff. In fact, I'm willing to hurt you if that's what it takes to have a relationship with you. Because without me, this life isn't worth living. Wow. So I'm, my theological clock is just going, making a 180-degree turn. And all of a sudden, after those three days, I'm saying, Lord, thank you. I'm so sorry that I accuse you of not knowing what you're doing. Fast forward to the day after Christmas, 2004. Some of you will remember this. Giant earthquake in the Indian Ocean created a tsunami. Hit four countries. Killed over 267,000 people. I was asked to go to Thailand to do some recovery work there, some relief work. I'll tell you, I've been, I've done family relief, I've done earthquake work, I've done a lot of stuff. But man, tsunamis, that's a whole new ballgame. Tsunami in Thailand was 40 feet tall, going 140 miles an hour. You don't outrun that, outrun that. And the power of water is unbelievable. Our job was, was to, uh, to find bodies. And uh, when we found them, to clean them up, take a picture of them, take them to the morgues. They had, they had transformed the, uh, the Buddhist temples into morgues. They had refrigerator trucks where we'd put the bodies. And take the pictures and put them on this bulletin board. And this bulletin board was 100 yards long of pictures. And if you think you drown in a tsunami, you don't drown in a tsunami, man. You, you just get bludgeoned to death. Because the trash and the stuff drives this wave and, and, and you just get beat up and all this stuff. You would wish it would be drowning. That would be much easier. So the people that we found had been, had been stripped, clo- stripped from their clothes. They were beat up. They were in really bad shape. And these poor relatives are going along this board trying to recognize their people who have been just terribly beaten up. It was, it was so sad. After the recovery of trying to find people who had survived and recovering bodies, our next goal was to start in some of the rebuilding process. And they sent me off of Thailand to see these islands off of Thailand to try to uh, do some assessment out there of what had happened. So I jumped in a boat, went to sit next to a Thai man, and he says, don't sit next to me. I'm a man with a black heart. I said, a black heart? Tell me about that. He says, well, I... I I live out on one of those islands, and I lost a lot of my family. I believe in reincarnation. And the, the whole process of reincarnation is you, you live a good life, a better life, and, and when you die, you're reincarnated back into a higher station in life till you reach nirvana, which is nothingness. Not sure what motivates that belief system, but okay. And he believed he was so dark, had done so many bad things that he was stuck He was so dark, he couldn't die. Therefore, he couldn't reach a new station. I shared the reality of Jesus with him that there was a, there's a man named Jesus who came to take that darkness away. He didn't need to live with it. He was really gracious to me, but basically in Thai told me to go jump in the water. Um, He and I kind of became friends. When we got to his island, uh, we, we started to walk around the island. I asked him to show me his, his, his village, his place. We found in the middle of the island his boat. He was a fisherman. 
It was about a half a mile inland. Asked him to tell me about the day, and he says, Ah, Greg, he says, "Uh, I was out fishing. I'd caught my catch, and I was moving my boat back in, and and, uh, it was was really rough because all the currents were coming back me, and I look at my island, and all the water's coming away from my island. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew it wasn't good. So my boat wouldn't go forward, so I jumped in the water, I swam, and I finally got ashore, and I got to the, the shore, and I started to run up the beach in order to warn my family, and, and right then the wave hit me in the back and drove me into a tree, and I hung on to that tree, and I'm running out of air, so I shimmied up the tree, and when I finally got above the water, it was just in time to watch my entire family washed out to sea, 21 of my relatives all gone in a second. So I, I, was, I was devastated. Whole island was gone. I was the only one who survived. Well, Lek became a friend of mine every time I went, I went back to hate, I went back to Thailand probably, I don't know, seven, eight times, whatever. And every time I would go, I'd find Lek. And I'd continue to share Jesus with him. And he just kind of got softer and softer each trip. About the fifth trip, he accepted Jesus as a savior, and it was awesome. To, to watch this man who was so overwhelmed with his blackness, to have it be gone and to be replaced with the joy of Jesus and a sense of, I'm okay, was amazing. Last time I was with Lek, <clears throat> I knew it was the last time I was going to be in Thailand, so we sat down and we had a meal together. And I just said, Lek, now that, now that you know Jesus, tell me about your perception of who God is. He says, ah, Greg, he says, God is uh, so compassionate and kind and gracious to me. But dude, how can you say that? God just wiped out your entire family. He says, well, let me tell you something. He says, you know, if if I had lost five of my family, that'd have been difficult, but I'd have been okay. If God had taken 10, that would have been more difficult, but I'd still have been okay. He says, you know, the amazing thing about our loving God is he knew me so well. He knew at exactly what point I would break. And that's exactly where he took me. He took me to a place where the only option I had was to reach for his hand. Because other, all other options were gone. He says, can you imagine a God that loved me so much? That he's willing to do that. That is an amazing God. Lex, a pastor on that island now, doing an amazing job, an amazing man, and I am so thankful for him. And I did, because a lot of you guys are asking this question, so I'll bring it up. Lex, what about your 21 relatives? What about them? And he says, you know what, Greg? I believe God loves each one of us enough that he brings us to the end of ourselves, just like he did with me. And I believe every one of my relatives, God brought them to that same place. Because that's what a loving God does. What they decided is between them and him. And I'm okay with that. That's faith. That's amazing. So my theology is beginning to twist even more now. So I started off looking through this lens of stuff, and now I'm looking through this lens of relationship, and I'm beginning to understand that God will bring people to the end of themselves. So I start thinking through, well, what, what did Jesus say in the New Testament? Well, he said in Matthew chapter 19, it's really hard for a rich men to get into the kingdom, didn't he? 
That's probably why Christianity is dying in the U.S. as a footnote. He goes on and he has this conversation with the rich man. Uh, and the rich man asks, uh, you know, how must I be saved? What does Jesus say? Go sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor. What happens? Rich man leaves grieved because he had lots of stuff. Jesus goes on to say, what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? Then he makes this great comment. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go to hell. I don't have this in my note, but I, want, I saw a picture on the screen. You have a picture of a screen of a gal with only one arm and a child in her arms. She's an amazing lady. She was 16 when the earthquake happened, and she was in the second floor of a three-story building, and it all collapsed. And it took, them, it took them eight days to find her. And when they found her, she was in this kind of Superman pose down like this. And they were able to dig all of the rubble from around her except for her left arm. And she was getting so weak. And they finally handed her a bone saw and she cut her own arm off. And I thought of this passage. And because of her missing arm, she came to our program for disabled children and found Jesus. Jesus is willing to do some pretty drastic stuff in order for you to find him. So Jesus' value is not stuff. Stuff blinds us from our need for a relationship with him. So if we look at the world around us, who is most be pitied, the poor or the rich? The rich. Because we're the ones that can't see because we got too much stuff. James goes on to say that uh, he has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. You watch where Christianity is growing. It's growing in the third world with people who have no, have little. Then God took me to Acts chapter 17 and we'll start to, to wind up here. Acts chapter 17 verses 24 through 27. God says this. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Stop right there. So what's he saying? I'm sovereign. I'm in control. And everything I do, I determine time, place, and circumstances of existence. you agree with that? So he says, and why? Why does God do it? What drives the sovereign hand of God, verse 27, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us? What drives the sovereign hand of God? A relationship with him. He determines where you will be, when you will be, how you will live, because he is so much in control, his desire is to put you in a circumstance where you can see the cross of Jesus the clearest. You want to know why those kids and not your kids? Because they could find Jesus better where they are and your kids can find Jesus better where they are. That's what drives the hand of God. 
We are where we are, not by chance, but by the hand of God, because we're at the place where we can find Jesus the easiest. Because that's what drives the sovereign hand of God. Wow. You're here today because Jesus wanted you here. You may have thought that you were the one who made that choice. Sorry. God wanted you here. God is sovereign. I got a newsflash for you. This will probably be hard for you to hear, but it's the way it is. God does not care about your happiness. God doesn't care about your comfort. He doesn't care about your safety. He does not even care about your body parts. If it keeps you from him. A friend of mine broke her neck when she was 17 years of age. As a result of that, she now has an amazing relationship with Jesus. And if you were to ask her, would you want your legs back in exchange for your relationship with Jesus? She would say, no way. No way. My Haitian friends suffer a lot. When you see them in heaven, I got a job for you. You go up and you ask them, was the suffering worth it? And they will tell you, for this? Are you kidding me? For this to live eternally with an awesome God? I would have suffered more for this. Because that's what it's worth. I did kind of my own personal survey on crises around the world. Because I tell you, I have been challenged by almost every relief worker in the world, how could your loving God do terrible things like this? In Ethiopia, where I was, where we lost 200,000 people, within two years after the famine, the church had grown four times. In Thailand, in the south of Thailand, where the tsunami hit, there was not one church before the tsunami. Within a year after the tsunami, there were 38 churches. In Haiti, where we lost 300,000 people in one day in, in January 12th of 2010, today we have over 2 million people that have come to Jesus. You tell me that's a cruel God. See, God does what he does, not because he's cruel, but because he's desperate for a relationship with us and he will be willing to do anything in order to gain that relationship. Include, take it all away. Wow. So, we have suffering. That's our theology. God is sovereign. God is in control. What is his passion is it for the relationship of people? So, now what's my response to that? What's my sociological response to suffering? Do I leave them there? Oh, you know, God's in control of it, so let's just leave them there. I would rather be comfortable here where I am. No. No. What does Jesus expect of me? There's a passage that kind of scares me. And that is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not for salvation, but for rewards. We all will give account to what we have done, either good or bad. Why does that scare me? I was never a good test taker. But when Jesus quizzes me, I want to know the answer. Don't you? 
And I will tell you the reason that I do what I do because I refuse to stand before Jesus and have him ask me, what did you do about the children? And say I did nothing. I refuse. Because he will ask. I guarantee it. Well, let me wrap it up with this. Matthew chapter 25. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open there. We'll read through it real quick, and then I'll give you some closing thoughts. Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is kind of wrapping things up, talking to the disciples about things to expect. And this is, this is a passage about judgment. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it not. To the extent that you did it to the one of these of the brothers of mine, the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accused ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, did we, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into, just, into eternal judgment. So what's the event here? It's judgment. It's separation. Interesting that Jesus does not separate them on the basis of their theology. Isn't it? What does he separate them based upon? Conduct. Conduct. I was thirsty. You fed me. I was hungry. You fed me. I was a stranger. You invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. Prison, and you came to me. Jesus is saying your theology and your sociology have to agree. James says it this way. Faith without works is what? Dead. So what's the assumption? That somewhere in this process, my theology has to work itself out. I'm not promoting works theology. I'm not. I'm not saying you're saved by your work, but what I am saying is Jesus says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, when, I, when you came into a relationship with you, you became a new creation. New, different, new heart. I took out the heart of stone and I gave you a heart of flesh. Your thinking, your motivation, everything was me, not you any longer. And he is saying in this passage, if you know me, it is impossible for you to not respond to the needs of people around you. 
If you drive by all the needs of the people around the world, if we, when you heard this morning, 16,000 people will, will die today, and you say, eh, I am telling you, Jesus is saying, I'm not really sure that you're saved. Because if you saw the world the way I see it, if you saw people the way I see it, that would break your heart because that's who I think. That's how I think. And that's how I see it. Whoa, that's tough stuff, isn't it? I was telling people out there, I was work with a church a little north of here and, uh, they just built a youth center, spent $5 million on a youth center for high school kids. Me and the pastor have had a few conversations about that. How can we spend money on ourselves like that when we have a world going to hell? I don't know. I tell him, dude, you're going to have to stand before Jesus and explain that. I'm glad I don't have to. Do we care? Do we care? Really? Jesus says, if you're one of mine, you do care. And not only do you care, you act. So Jesus says, I'm concerned about your theology that you see it correctly. And I'm concerned about your sociology that you do correctly. Well, a couple of questions. And that is... Jesus gives us a new heart and a new motivation. Maybe you find yourself this morning saying, you know, I, I'm, re I'm really not doing too much. What are you saying to me? I don't know, that's between you and the Lord, but I, I would probably not say you need to do more. Maybe you need to go back to the original step one and say, I don't know if you know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, Jesus will give you a new heart. You don't need to love more. You just need to let Jesus love through you. But also, if you're someone who is truly a believer and you're sitting on your duff and you're not doing anything and all your resources you think is for yourself. I'm saying Jesus has some thoughts about that. And I'm here to tell you from the word of God, I think he wants you to change that. That's what drives the heart of Connect Your Ministries. Because theologically, we can't do anything other than what we're doing. Sociologically, that's why we have to be out saving slave kids and telling them about Jesus because, doggone it, that's what Jesus would do. So, maybe you, maybe you can't go overseas. If you can go overseas, I would because I'll tell you what will happen when you're overseas. It'll break your heart, and I think that's where it starts. And then second of all, if you can't go, there's foster care programs, there's Children's Hunger Fund. There's all kinds of programs you can get involved with because we got a lot of needs here, here, that you can respond to. But I don't know how you can keep on walking past that homeless guy and believe that that's what Jesus wants you to do because I don't think he does. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to be your kids. I cannot imagine... How patient you are with us because I know I'm a knucklehead and uh, you're so patient with me to bring me along and to cause me to be different because that's who you are. Father, we ask that you bless these people, bless this place and make the name of Jesus be the brightest light in this neighborhood because of this place. We pray this in Jesus' name.
most gracious and holy name. Amen.